Ephesians, a.k.a., I'll ease you into this, Ephesians, a.k.a., Laodiceans. We know this from Colossians 4.16 plus a lot of other places, but let's take a couple of moments for preparation. Father, what a privilege it is to gather in the name of your Son and to be the beneficiaries of a divine rescue mission enacted by the triune God in our behalf through the Lamb of God. May we receive incentive tonight through the Holy Spirit and the Word to participate in the faithfulness of our Savior Christ Jesus. And in a truly spiritual life, empowered and energized by the spirit of grace, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I have a curious title for tonight, the 13th message on Better Call Paul, Latin Misses. Latin Misses. And there are a couple of big Latin Misses that indicate a theological tragic flaw a tragic flaw in Western theology and really a tragedy of Western thought. And these two Latin misses, I'll explain. The first Latin miss, in our study of Rev the Book, we already discovered how Augustine failed to distinguish the meanings of the Greek words ideos, I'll just do the English transliterations tonight, Idios and Aeonios. These are the Greek words used, and they distinguish. This one is purely eternal. This one, Aeonios, only means eternal or never-ending when it is definitive or descriptive of some attribute of God, who, of course, is Idios, who is eternal. The Latin myths is that this word, Aeternus, A-E-I-A-E-T-U-R-N-U-S, Aeternus, which you find in the Latin Vulgate, made no distinction between these two, these two words in the Greek. Aeonios almost always, unless it's related to something divine, some divine attribute, including divine life, It does not mean never-ending. It can mean an age. It can mean a lifetime. It can mean a brief span. It can mean even something that's almost instantaneous, but with a source in another world or another another sphere. But Aeternus or Aeternus in the Latin, the Latin Vulgate, which came into the Western theology from that moment on, did not distinguish... Aeonios, and it translated that word as eternal everywhere, which is kind of tragic when you start getting into eternal fire, eternal damnation, or eternal things that have to do with punishment, eternal punishment. And so that's the first Latin miss. It's a big one. It signals a significant oversight of insight And giving the sense of eternal and never-ending to the word aeonios, which never specifies such a meaning. 
in the Greek text of the New Testament or the Septuagint text of the Old Testament unless it is describing some divine attribute. There's been a whole study done on this by Ramelli and another scholar on the meaning, the terms of eternity, it's called. And so that's the first Latin miss. Now you know what I mean by Latin misses. The second Latin miss involves what I call a great grammatical irony. And this one has to do with the word for covenant. The Greek word for covenant is diatheke. Diatheke. The Hebrew word, I'll just say the Hebrew word is berith. B-E-R-I-T-H. Berith. Diatheke and berith. These are found... Good example is Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And as our troll booth theologian Jim has made known to me recently, this involves I wills by God. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will write my laws upon their heart. I will, I will, I will. And so it is indicative of a covenant that is entirely based on the divine initiative of grace. It is unilateral in that sense and unconditional. It's an unconditional covenant. We also have that unfolding in 2 Corinthians 3, Hebrews 8, etc. Diatheke and Berith. And they both reflect the idea of covenant. Here's the Latin myth. It's a big one. It's a, it is indicative of a tragedy in theology. And it is that the words berith and diatheke came into the Latin Vulgate or the Latin as foedus, F-O-E-D-U-S, foedus, where we get the word federal. And that reflects, the Latin word reflects the contractual meaning by translating what God did not consider to be a contract. Berith and, and diatheke indicate covenant, which is based in the promise of God. It's unconditional. Foitus, which in the Latin, the O-E, I believe, is O-I, if I remember correctly. I, the only time I took Latin was in... College, I think it was the year that I quit and then had to go back, so I didn't really get into it too much. But I was an altar boy, and we learned how to say the Mass in Latin. So, foitus reflects the Latin meaning of contract. And so, it was another big miss. It translated berith or diatheke as foitus, which has two meanings in the Latin. And here's where I found a kind of a, an irony. One meaning is congruent with the Latin verb foido, which means to defile or to pollute or even to disgrace, to mar or disfigure. Now, you'll see what I mean by an irony soon because, well, I'll give it away right from the start. This idea, this idea of a contractual agreement between God and man rather than a covenantal covenantal agreement distorted the gospel 
disgraced it, marred the gospel, and polluted it. So that we have a monstrous theological flaw in Western theology and a tragedy in Western thought, which is having its effect now and can have worse effects unless it's corrected. But there is, by the grace of God, insights. And I'm basing a lot of my study on insights, standing on the shoulders of scholars that have done the work. I'm not going to rework the whole work. I'm not going to show you the birth of the baby, just going to give you the baby. not going to tell you how sausage was made, but just serve you the sausage as best as I can. But foido also means... In the adjective, foitus, the adjective in the Latin means foul, filthy, ugly, repulsive, detestable, and horrible. We could say abominable. The second meaning of foitus is compact or contract or even stipulation, which means a requirement, a condition. The very word emphasizes conditionality whereas diatheke and berith is an unconditional covenant two Latin misses indicative of a tragic theological flaw in western thinking now the eastern church known as the orthodox church today basically avoided this and went with they continued in the Greek from the Greek fathers, like Origen, as we've studied, Gregory Nazianzus, and Gregory Nyssa, Didymus the Blind, and many others, even Melania was one of the female theologians way back then. And in the Greek, they understood the universality and the unconditionality of the covenant of God. And so they even to this day in their liturgy, their songs, their worship, many of their messages, they understand the apocatastasis ponton is the restoration of all things, God's intention, God's determination to sum up everything in Christ, which is what Paul teaches in Ephesians, as we're going to see tonight, also known as Laodiceans. The epistle called Ephesians was not sent to Ephesus. It was not sent to a, a group of churches it was sent to Laodicea and was to be read in Colossae. It was the, as the Colossian epistle was sent to Colossae and was to be read in Laodicea. Two churches, two assemblies, not founded by Paul in the Lycus Valley. So, once again, the second meaning of foitus is compact or contract or stipulation. So the very word emphasizes conditionality. And so the whole point of the traditional interpretation in many cases of Romans is that the covenant that God made with man is conditioned upon man's faith. And so there's justification by faith. Whereas the unconditional understanding of the contract discloses, along with the meaning of the phrase pistis Christu, the faith of Christ, that we are justified, mankind is justified unconditionally on his part 
but through the mediator's faithfulness, Jesus Christ. So it's an unconditional covenant. It's an unconditional soteriology. And I'm even of the strong conviction that we do not make a decision for Jesus resulting in salvation, but that Jesus has made a decision for us in accordance with God's plan to save all of humankind. This does not rule out human volition. It frees it from a previous slavery to sin and to the Adamic ontology. This is a freedom for which Christ freed us. So here's the two Latin misses, and that's how I wanted to start off tonight. As far as getting in and staying in, that is getting into Christ and staying in, or getting into salvation and staying in, there is no requirement or stipulation for man to fulfill. There would be if it was a contract, a foidus, but it isn't a contract, it's a covenant, an unconditional covenant. I like what Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 says even more emphatically. I will take the stony heart out from you and replace it with a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk according to my ordinances. In other words, I will cause you to have ethical efficacy. Ethical efficacy that can never happen through obeying the works of the law or through human energy or human power or through circumcision or through a comprehensive following of Torah. And to cause you to walk according to my ordinances, the ordinances that God has in the Torah are two. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. So putting his spirit in his people, he pours out the love of God in the hearts of his people. And so God's gift to us is the fulfillment of his mandates to us to love because he gives us the gift of his own love in Romans 5. 5. When you get to Romans 5, You're blown away. I was, and I think you will be, by the unchained gospel. So as far as getting in and staying in under an unconditional covenant, there's no requirement or stipulation for man to fulfill. But you see the Latin miss, Foetus, says there's a stipulation. And there's no emphasis on a mediator who is Jesus Christ, who happens to be a mediator of a new covenant in Hebrews 9, 15, and 16. More on that later. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, does a kind of a mixed metaphor there and gives the explanation of covenant as a will in testament. And so the death of the testator is required. And so that still is an unconditional thing. Unconditional soteriology. Unconditional salvation. Unconditional universal salvation. All of this goes toward answering the question that I asked at the end of Rev the Book in the segue between Rev the Book and Better Call Paul. Can Paul's body of epistles, the corpus or the Pauline corpus, be considered in its totality an apocalypse or a revelation of God in Christ Revealing Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance and emphasizing a Trinitarian 
theology strongly. Paul was strongly Trinitarian. We'll be bringing this out. And so an unconditional revelation of salvation. Now, as far as getting in and staying in, there's no requirement or stipulation under a covenant for man to fulfill. But here's where volition comes in. There are obligations for man, for men and women, when they're in, sealed by the Holy Spirit and participators of divine faithfulness. The obligation boils down to faithfulness. The faithfulness to which mankind is obliged or obligated, however, is the faithfulness of its sir. I'm bringing out of the treasure chest new and old things tonight. Sir, the single inclusive representative. The faithfulness that's required of man under this unconditional covenant as an obligation once you're in, not an obligation to stay in, but an obligation once you're in. If you're going to, in other words, experience the kingdom of God, faithfulness is required. But it's not your faithfulness even. It boils down to the faithfulness to which mankind is obligated under its sir, its single inclusive representative, Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of the new covenant. Here again, Galatians 2.20 figures prominently. I was crucified with Christ, said Paul rightly. See, here is his volition, choosing to participate retrospectively in the history of Messiah, crucified with him. This implies that Paul was buried with him, as we were in Colossians 2.12. This implies that we were risen with him, as Paul was in Colossians 3.1, that we were together with him. This implies that we were ascending in him, that we were raised up in him or caught up in him in heavenly places to be seated with him in the heavenly places as kind of his new council of Elohim in Ephesians 2.6 so that in the ages to come we will be trophies of the grace of God. So the, the obligation is faithfulness. Your volition comes in when you choose to participate in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and walk by means of the Spirit and not fulfill the demands of the Adamic ontology. So, our volition is not in any way obfuscated or taken out of the picture, but it is emphasized, but only emphasized once you're in. And it's not even to stay in. So the faithfulness to which mankind is obliged is the faithfulness of its sir, Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of the new covenant. I was crucified with Christ, Paul said, retrospective participation. Nevertheless, I live a present participation chosen by Paul. And the life that I now live in the flesh, that's previous to bodily resurrection, obviously. The life that I now live right now in this body, in this body of flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. That's the genitive, the subjective genitive interpretation of the faith of Jesus Christ. 
which we will get into more and more to show that that's the proper way to understand it, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, I don't frustrate the grace of God. You choose not to frustrate the grace of God. You choose to participate in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. You choose not to live for yourselves, but to him who is risen from the dead, as 2 Corinthians 5.15 says. But the two Latin misses indicate a tragic flaw in Western theology and a tragedy in Western thought altogether. I'm doing this a little bit more methodically tonight and a little more passionately on Sunday, if you were here, that was a little passionate. I let off this series with an allusion to Thomas Wolfe's book, The Kingdom of Speech, which also Tony Sadar referred to in his excellent teaching in my absence. And therein, within this, there's a quote of Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a nihilistic philosopher. And I want to quote this with more exact quotation tonight. In Germany, the origin of species was an immediate sensation. That, of course, is Darwin's theory. By 1874, Thomas Wolfe writes in this highly recommended book, The Kingdom of Speech, by 1874, Nietzsche paid Darwin and his theory the highest praise with the most famous declaration in modern philosophy. God is dead. Without mentioning Darwin by name, he said, Quote, the doctrine that there was no cardinal distinction between man and animal will demoralize humanity throughout the West. It will lead to the rise of barbaric nationalistic brotherhoods. He all but called them by name, Nazism, communism, and fascism. Or today we could say Islamic fascism or Islamic extremism. And result within, Nietzsche predicted, it will result within one generation in wars as such as never have been fought before. And Wolf says, if we take a generation to be 30 years, that would have meant by 1904. In fact, the First World War broke out in 1914. This latter-day barbarism, he went on to say, will in the 21st century lead to something worse than the Great Wars. The total eclipse of values. Now, The total eclipse of values, that's the quote. That's page 51 to 52 in that highly recommended, very short, easy to read, kind of witty writing of Thomas Wolfe, who's now 85 years old and still has pretty clear thinking. The total eclipse of values has not occurred as yet. But you can see the edges of this eclipse. You can see the shadows start to cross the sun. It hasn't occurred as yet, though there is a partial eclipse for sure. The tragic flaw in Western theology has not helped this. In fact, it has aided and abetted this eclipse. 
by presenting a Christian gospel, so-called, which very wrongly depicts the God of Israel and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ as a God of retributive judgment. Beginning with that blocked speech that Paul made in Romans 1, 18 to 32. I have a lot more to say about that. Inasmuch as God is perceived and portrayed as such, his revelation to us is eclipsed. In other words, by the traditional construal of Romans, for example, and justification by faith rather than deliverance by the faithfulness of Messiah. Nothing is presented against that eclipse, but only aids and abets it. At least from the view of Western man, which I get, again, is indicated by the two Latin misses. The Eastern Orthodox theology, once again, has largely avoided the tragedy of Western theology by maintaining the theology of the patristic fathers, which we studied pretty much in detail who emphasized the apocatastasis pantone, the restoration of all things. Now, I don't have any gripes with any of the Western or Eastern movements. I do have a gripe with the Western theological tragic flaw, which cuts across a lot of borders. I do have a gripe with the the Eastern Orthodox, so-called Eastern Orthodoxy, because it seems like they've closeted this universal message in their liturgy and in their songs, but it's not really getting out there. With one exception, Jürgen Moltmann. Moltmann is an example of a tendency toward the Eastern Orthodox universalism. The Western view of the gospel has produced a tragedy in Western thought by obscuring the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4. And we're going to get into some serious territory with 2 Corinthians very soon. And again, this aids and abets the God of this age. It is not human flesh. Although Paul had a problem with a particular teacher. And even prayed that this teacher would be kind of taken out of the picture. I, didn't, I don't think he meant take him home, but I think he meant something. Get him out of the way. And the Lord said, no, I think we'll just leave him there for a while because by the time you write Romans, you'll understand his whole distorted message and be able to refute it and reduce it to absurdity and throw it out. And that's exactly what Paul did in Romans. But the whole source of this is not in human teachers, but in the God of this age who has obscured the gospel of the glory of the Messiah. He has obfuscated or made unclear the gospel of the glory of Messiah, which is a universal glory and a universal summation of all things in Christ. That message is obscured. And it's by the God of this age. So we are not wrestling against blood and flesh here. As the Bible says, and I'll hit that tonight. We're not struggling against blood and flesh. We're struggling against principalities and powers of the invisible kind. Evil in the heavenly places. Resistance from invisible and spiritual powers. 
But mankind can cooperate with these powers, as Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And as he said, these so-called super apostles in Corinth that were bothering him so much were ministers of Satan who transforms himself into an angel of light. We'll get there too, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15. And so this whole thing, this whole tragedy that's now, we, and I, again, I, I like what Douglas Campbell said about this in a conversation. It's the Kool-Aid that we drink every day in Western society. We assume this. Churches assume it. God's a God of retributive justice, and he's waiting around the corner to judge mankind, and because mankind didn't pass the test of the design of God in creation. I'm not saying by that that, God, that man can't recognize something of divinity in creation. What Paul is against is God handing people over to all kinds of depraved immorality as a punishment for not recognizing or giving thanks to him by what they see in creation. But I'll be clarifying that as we go along. What you preach with passion, sometimes you have to clarify with exposition. That's part of the thing. That's what it's, it's a lot different being in the academy and being in the church. What I'm trying to do is shorten the gap between what happens in the Christian Academy of Scholars and the church. It used to be 100 to 150 years before the insights of people, profound scholars that God gave to them, got to the church. But I'm trying to shorten that gap and get the insights that came in 2013 to you in 2016, for example. So then, and these are insights from God. They are tested and found true. So aiding and abetting this whole Darwinian thing, followed up by Freud and Marx and Engels and the great so-called earth movers and shakers of the 19th century, aiding and abetting them is a gospel that really can't do anything to stop the eclipse. In fact, it kind of pulls it along, pulls the shadow across the sun or pulls the shadow across the moon. Because the Bible says that God is without shadow of turning, that God is without an eclipse. But this false gospel puts an eclipse in the face of God, eclipses the face of God, so that his face can't shine unto us. As the psalmist said, let your face shine upon your people. So behind all obfuscations or obscuring of the gospel, God of this age, as he's called. 2 Corinthians 11, Romans 16, 20, a climax of Romans 16, 17 to 20. Paul says at the end, in a climactic statement, Anyone who brings a gospel other than the one I have brought to you, which is an unconditional covenant gospel, an unconditional soteriology, mark that person and his cronies and avoid them. And God will crush Satan under your feet shortly because he's the invisible author behind these human teachers. That may be men of so-called high ethical standing or reputation, but they're ministers of Satan. That's pretty blunt. 
So what we're really dealing with is, is Paul's gospel a forensic account of a just God who distributes his justice retributively, or is it a mystery? Is it a mystical account of God in his love and in his universal mercy toward all his creation? I believe that Paul's gospel about his son is the mystery that Paul talks about. Now, I've laid the groundwork here, so let's go on. Let's turn to Laodiceans chapter 3, verse 1. And this is going to be a little different than what you're used to. Instead of taking five years to go through Romans, one by one, word by word, I'm going to be taking pretty large segments of the Pauline epistles everywhere, mixing it up. By the time we're done with Better Call Paul, we will have dealt with most of the 10 communal epistles of Paul, and then a lot of the pastoral epistles also, which are, to me, have come into a focus that I've never seen before, and it's a sharper one than ever before. So let's look at this. This is my translation from the Greek text of Ephesians or Laodiceans 3, 1 to 9. For this reason, I, Paul, that itself is a prophetic way of speaking, In John's revelation, we have John saying, I, John. In Daniel, we have Daniel saying, I, Daniel, understood from Jeremiah, such and such a thing. Or, I, Jesus, as is found in Revelation. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And that's kind of a word for pagans. On behalf of you pagans. Paul is in prison in a place called Atapeia, or it might be Apatea, I don't know which one. I can't remember. I have to, I'm going to look that up. But he's in prison, and he has been for about, he's going to be there for about six months, a little west of the Lycus Valley. And he hears about this pagan assembly of people that have been sealed in Christ. He then says in verse 2, I assume, there's kind of a long hyphen here after the word Gentiles or pagans, and Paul says, I assume that you've heard of the stewardship of the grace of God that was given to me for you. In other words, somebody else planted this church and watered it. But if they did, they were sort of a surrogate of Paul. So he assumes that whoever planted this church, Epaphras was a person who planted the Colossian church. But these people were sort of cohorts of Paul, or surrogates of Paul. So he said, I assume that you have heard of the stewardship of the grace of God that was given to me for you, you Gentiles. And notice what verse 3 says. And that the mystery was made known to me by revelation. That's a key phrase. The mystery was made known to me, D or dia, Apoc alupsios. Apocalypsios. Through a revelation, through an apocalypse. Paul's writings all together considered as an apocalypse, which apocalypse by its very definition is the revelation of the saving act of God in Christ for all. That's my definition of it, but we'll, cl- we'll clarify that more and more. I assume, let's start again with verse 2 of Laodiceans 3. 
I assume that you've heard of the stewardship of the grace of God that was given to me. In Romans, he said, grace and apostleship was given to me to bring about participation in Jesus' faithfulness in all the nations, among all the pagans. I'm sure, he said, I assume you've heard. And that the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Now, here's a huge, that's a new word. I think people use that word now. Massive, enormous. Let's think of other words. And please, let's think of other phrases other than at the end of the day. How about in the final analysis? Let's go back to that old one. Let's just think of, you know, let's grow our vocabulary. But notice what this says. The mystery was made known to be my revelation. But why in Galatians 1.12 did Paul say the gospel was made known to me by an apocalypse? Could it be that the mystery is the gospel and the gospel is the mystery? If so, then we're dealing with the mystery of God's will, which is to summarize all things in Christ in Ephesians 1.10, which God determined to do in 1.11. And the first indications of that summary of all things is the breaking down of a wall between Jews and pagans and the making of one new man in Christ. I assume, I assume that you all know this, the grace of God that was given to Paul, the stewardship of his grace. And as 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 2 says, we are stewards of the mysteries of God and there's only one qualification for a steward and that's faithfulness. And I assume that you know and are learning that the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Kata apokalupsin, as in Galatians 1, 12, in which Paul states that the gospel came by a revelation. Di apokalupsios, of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say, as I have written about in brief above. He wrote about it above in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. And Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. The mystery that he wrote briefly about above really starts with Ephesians 1, 9. That you may know the mystery of God's intention. Which in the fullness of times or the fullness of the ages, which is now, which is now. In the fullness of the ages, God summarizes all things, tapanta, that's all things without exception, in Christo, in Christ. I've written about it above, so I assume you know what was given to me as a message, as a gospel, as a mystery, by reading this. Four says, anagonosko means by reading this repeatedly, not just reading it once. Anagonosko means to read carefully and even repeatedly. By reading this repeatedly, we would say by studying this, you'll be able to gain an insight into my understanding about the mystery of the Messiah. Verse 5, which in other, meaning previous generations, was not made known to the sons of men. That's humankind at large. As it is now, apocalypto, revealed by the Spirit. Notice the Trinitarian action here. To his consecrated apostles and 
prophets, meaning New Testament prophets, because he's now revealing it to, well, Paul was an apostle. John, the writer of Revelation, was a prophet. He makes known to his consecrated apostles, namely, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, comma, of the same body, comma, and co-partakers of the promise in Messiah Jesus through the gospel. And the gospel is, according to Romans 1.16, the power of God for salvation for Jew and Gentile alike. Verse 7, of which I was made an administrator according to the gift, dorayan gift, the unconditional gift. It better be unconditional gift to Paul because he had murder in his heart and was motivated by the intentionality of murder when he met Jesus Christ. So if you want to talk about conditions, then God says, well, let's thoroughly vet this man, Saul, before we call him. Is he loyal to our cause? Well, no, he's killing your people and he's persecuting Jesus and he's murderous. Well, that rules him out because you see, there's got to be a stipulation. Who said? Foitus said so. Yeah, well, Diatheke didn't. Barith didn't. God didn't. I'll vet him all right. I'll choose the worst guy out there. And make him an epistle of unconditional grace. So of which I was made an administrator according to the unconditional gift of the grace of God. Which he gave to me according to the operation of his power. It came as an operation of his power. It continued as an operation of his power. In Paul's life and ministry. To me he says in verse 8. The least of all the saints, this grace was given, colon, to bring about the joyous news of the inexhaustible wealth of Christ and, in verse 9, to enlighten everybody. Enlighten everybody, that sounds something that's the opposite of an eclipse. And to enlighten everybody. about the administration of the mystery that was hidden from the past ages in God, the creator of everything. God, the creator of everything, Tapanta. What I like here is the interchange of gospel and mystery, gospel and mystery, gospel and mystery, almost to the point where we're ready to say that the gospel is the mystery and the mystery is the gospel. And so if the mystery is the gospel, then the gospel or the joyous good news is God's intent to summarize everything in Jesus Christ, the great intention. And you tell me what human beings that are sinners have any choice in the matter of Standing in the way of God's intention. I will do all my will. Isaiah 46.10. And I will have all men be saved and come to the epignosis. Transcendent knowledge of the truth. Yeah, there's choice. But you better believe that it's a 
serious matter to put choice where it belongs. I'm saved because I made a decision for Jesus. No, you're not. You're saved because Jesus made the decision for you. Not my will, but yours be done, and yours is to save everybody. So the sir made the decision for you. Imagine preaching the gospel in which you tell people that Jesus made the decision for you. Instead of, if you're going to make a decision for Jesus, come on down here. Bring your cartons of cigarettes and your marijuana bubble gum and your Johnny Walker red and black. Put it on the altar. And show that you've made a decision for Jesus. And you're justified by faith plus a whole lot of other things. Tragedy. The all-inclusive gospel is the mystery of the Messiah. Is the mystery of God's intent. And his unstoppable determination to sum up everything in him. Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. In this fullness of the ages. That is beginning now. How about Laodiceans chapter 6? We'll close with this. How about this passage? Seen in a different light tonight. Laodiceans. I'm easing you into it. Also known as Ephesians. When I, I did take some notes on this. And I did find myself writing Ephesians. So I forgive you if you don't make the decision. Or make the connection soon. Laodiceans 6.10. Finally. Be empowered by the Lord and by his dominating strength. And clothe yourselves with the panoply of a heavy-armed soldier that comes from God. It's, I used to call it GI, God-issued. Panoply, full arm. You know what they say now? They say to a SWAT team or to an assault team, we're going in heavy. That means you're fully armed. That means you've got grenades on your belt. You've got your bandolier of 50 calibers if you're the sniper. You've got your MP5, Heckler and Koch, etc., etc. You've got your armor, your chest piece, your headgear, your head-protecting gear. You've got, we're going in heavy. And that's what Paul's saying. I want you to know the age that we're living in We're going in heavy. But I got good news for you. The weapons of our warfare are not fragile or delicate. They aren't for the snowflake generation. They aren't for a stand of pussy willows. They're for soldiers of Christ. This is a real war. You don't get recognition and you don't get medals for this. Not here. But there will be a day on which the Lord will reward those who are faithful and who have loved his appearing with a crown of righteousness. The Lord, the righteous judge. Look at carefully. Verse 10. Verse 11. Let's start with 10. Be empowered by the Lord by his dominating strength. In verse 11, clothe yourselves with the panoply, the full armor of a heavily armed soldier that comes from God. I put in brackets because we're going in heavy. For our struggle is not against blood and flesh. That's the way it is in the Greek. It doesn't say flesh and blood. It says blood and flesh, enemies. 
Our struggle is not against blood and flesh enemies. We need GI, God-issued panoply for this one. A God-issued panoply. It's against... Because it's in the contrast here, he means invisible as opposed to blood and flesh. So it's against invisible cosmic powers, against invisible rulers of this darkness, the present eclipse, which isn't set back by a false gospel. It's only aided and abetted. Against spiritual evil in the heavens which is the invisible as opposed to the visible or earthly, as Colossians 1.16 to 120 distinguishes it. For this reason, says verse 13, take up the God-issued panoply to be powerful to resist in the evil day, that is, in the heat of battle, in the fog of war, in the day of adversity. If you faint in the day of adversity, It's because your strength is small. Proverbs 24.10. Which means, if you blend it with here, if you faint in the day of adversity, it's because your strength is yours. And not the Lord's. Better get used to hiding behind a door-sized shield called the shield of faithfulness because it's Messiah's faithfulness. And, he says, that you may resist in the evil day and after subduing all, not doing all, subduing all, to remain standing. When the dust settles, the fog of war is blown away, by the uneclipsed light of the sun. You're standing there. Your armor is dinged. You're probably bloody. You're probably beaten. You're probably wincing. But you're so rejoicing because you're standing. And it's over. And you will be that way. This assembly will be that way. You will be standing when it's all said and done. At the end of the age. Let's finish this off. So stand then. With a belt of truth around your waist. And put on the chest protector made of righteousness. What's righteousness? The saving act of God in Christ. Let that protect your heart. And for traction, put on your feet the combat boots that are made of readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You're ready with the gospel of peace. What is the gospel of peace? That God will reconcile all things in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, by the peace that was made by the blood of Christ's cross. That's the gospel that you're supposed to be ready with. That's what gives you traction in the forward motion. Where you watch your six by six and you watch for your brothers at your left and your right. In every engagement, 
He says in verse 16, in every engagement, there will be many skirmishes, many engagements. In every engagement, take the shield of fidelity, which is your participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God, by which you are able to extinguish the fiery arrows of the evil one. The misconstrual of the gospel of Paul was the result of arrows of the evil one that set the world on fire. But the recovery and the retrieval of his true gospel will extinguish that fire. You are able to extinguish the fiery arrows of the evil one. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The whole point is there is resistance to this gospel in the form of a distortion of the truth, also known as the lie in Ephesians 4.25. We're to put off the lie. The lie has taken the form of a tragedy of Western thought in which Paul's gospel and the gospel of the glory of the Christ, the image of God, has been obfuscated and severely obscured aiding and abetting the eclipse of pseudoscience, of not truly settled science, and of philosophies of men that are nihilistic and that essentially equate man with animals and are threatening with the destruction of all true values. So again, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 6 comes in. But I'm going to finish Laodiceans chapter 6 and verse 18 to 20. And we'll close with this. While through all kinds of prayer and entreaty, you pray at all times in the spirit. And stay alert in this. With full vigilance and persistence in intercession for all the saints. All the saints. The saints in your own periphery. The saints in your own family. The saints in Egypt that have been persecuted and put out from their churches. The saints in the Middle East who are being butchered, crucified, and killed, and raped, and pillaged. They are us. Praying at all time for all the saints. And then Paul says this, and pray for me to the end that articulation or the way of saying this will be given to me to open my mouth with joyous, fearless confidence to make known the mystery of the gospel. The way this is back to backed, musterion and euangelion means the mystery that is the gospel. The gospel is the mystery. The mystery is God's intent to summarize everything in Christ Jesus. Pray for me, I say, tonight, that I may make articulation, that I may articulate this insight. It's one thing to see it. It's another thing to say it and to say it correctly, boldly, and fearlessly. For which I am an ambassador, Paul says, in a chain. That's an anomaly. Ambassadors are supposed to be given diplomatic immunity, but not an ambassador of Christ in this world. 
an ambassador in a chain. Paul was shackled probably hands and feet. Pray that I may speak boldly in him just as one ought to speak. The great dialectic of contradictories in Romans that we're concerned with, and I've been hitting on Sunday mornings, is concerned with a forensic configuration of the gospel over and against Paul's true, pristine configuration of the gospel, which is a mystery. It's the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery in Romans 16, 25 to 27. So here we are back to the disclosure or revelation or apocalypse of God's intention and determination to sum up everything in Messiah Jesus. That's not only his thelema, it is his bulema. Thelema means desired intent. Bulema means unstoppable determination. God's unstoppable determination, which will be fulfilled regardless of any volitions of creatures, that everything's going to be summed up in Christ Jesus. You know what your will is now to make, you know what your choice is now? Participate in this gospel. Put on the belt of this truth. There's your volition. It was for freedom that Christ made us free. Stand in that freedom. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. You've had me do slowly and methodically tonight what you had me to do with rapid-fire action and passionately Sunday morning. Both of these things go hand in hand, the proclamation or the preaching, the exposition or the teaching. Both of these are necessary. We live in such a time in which there is a danger of a great eclipse, a total eclipse of human values. And yet we have an opportunity to retrieve the original gospel of God about his son, nucleated in the Pauline epistles, by which not only values will not be eclipsed, but new and transcendent values of a higher integration of living available to us by a Trinitarian divine action in Christ. We're on the precipice of such a wonderful and awesome revolution. Thank you for it. You will make us equal to it by your grace and by your fidelity. And we decide, Father, and I will tonight, to say that I was crucified with Jesus and that I live now by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A far cry from a God of retribution. You are a God who chose rather to die than to destroy his own enemies. We thank you for that. And as we have the opportunity, we pray now that you will 